0: This is Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.
1: Hello, I'm Jake Cantor and a warm welcome to the show. We're back at Maple Street Studios and can officially declare Silly Season over. We'll have news on the BBC Trust chair and the return of Commission of the Fortnight. Also on the show, we head to UKTV's Upfronts for a sprinkling of celebrity magic dust. And finally, previews return. We get stuck into ITV's Celebrity Squares and BBC Two's The Motorway Life in the Fast Lane. What more could you want from your fortnightly dose of all things telly? Joining me in the studio is broadcast columnist and entertainment producer Stephen D. Wright. Hello, sir. Back to school. Back to school. Oh, yeah. Well, it's good to have you back in the studio. Um, you didn't come to Edinburgh. Uh, what no. Was, what, what did it look like from down here?
2: Basically looked like a load of old hot air, really. You, you see these articles from you know, the perspective of being outside and you think, so what? Mm. That's what it seems like. Whether or not those kind of, you know, the David Abrahams thing will percolate through and all the rest of it. It's incredibly sort of uh, businessy orientated rather than creative. So from my perspective, it's sort of uh, it's left me a little bit cold. You know, it didn't, it didn't, I didn't go, wow, what an incredible Edinburgh. Uh, I didn't really feel that. This it's way. funny because that's how it sort of played up there as well, wasn't it? I mean, David's not a massively popular
1: figure with the creative side of the industry, Robin, is he?
3: No, definitely. And you know, with, with his speech and with Charter and your looming, clearly... The business side of things was on the agenda. I mean, there were still some fun, creative sessions as there always are. Um, but certainly the McTaggart and the, the, the kind of the agenda that was being set is about, you know, the changing face of the TV landscape, the changing face of of, of indies and what makes an Indian a super Indian, all that sort of stuff. Uh,
1: as you may have guessed, Robin Parker is with us. He's a uh, full broadcast features editor. Sorry, I forgot to introduce you, aside from Edinburgh. Uh, you're a Bake Off fan. Tell us about uh, Bin Gate, Alaska Gate, whatever sort of gate you want to call it. I don't know.
3: <laughs> I came late into Bake yeah. Off this year. I kind of missed the first couple of episodes, but and I sort of seen some twitterings from uh, the BBC and various producers saying, "Oh, there's some scandal coming up in this week's show." So I thought, "Well, this is the one to get back into it." And blimey, they've uh, really, uh, really gone for it with uh, the move to BBC One. They've created a lot of noise around it. Some. People may cynically say there was a bit of engineering to get the show talked about a bit more. (laughs) The contestant herself said it was poorly edited. Now, I I read poorly edited
1: as edited for shock value and, and drama which is no surprise, really which is yes. yeah
2: what, isn't that what editing is supposed to do <laughs> you know you leave, you know a couple of boring scenes a little bit of cutting and suddenly you've got the x factor okay on that on that note we'll uh, we'll
1: move on to something a bit more serious uh, up first this week is the surprise appointment of Rona Fairhead as the first woman to run the BBC trust uh, the former financial times group chief executive is a businesswoman of some repute uh, she holds down board roles at HSBC and PepsiCo but is an entirely unknown quantity to the broadcasting industry. Uh, We'll get our first look at her next week when she faces MPs of the Culture Select Committee as the final step in her appointment process. There she'll give us a glimpse of how she will tackle her creaking in-tray, which contains the small issues of charter renewal, dealing with the fallout from the Scottish referendum and deciding BBC Three's fate. Uh, Stephen, what do you make of her appointment?
2: I'm trying to think of something really witty and exciting because... (laughs) it's obviously a big deal but it kind of again leaves me cold it's it, this is this is like a this is like a government appointment you know it doesn't really mean anything to program makers and viewers as far as i can tell the big news is she's a woman you know wow welcome to the 20th century this this side of tv leaves me cold yeah, you know, These are these are bankers dealing with government bankers and lawyers and, you know what I mean, It's this isn't about TV, this is about contracts and money and stuff like that. She's obviously good enough to do the job, end of story, from my perspective. And Robin,
3: the reaction at Broadcast Towers was sort of who, initially? Yeah, there's a bit of that. I mean, many would argue, let's have, you know, an outsider, but someone who's got some broader media experience and clearly some good business credentials, it's... A fairly tough, fairly thankless role in some senses because you are that bridge with between government and BBC. So as Stephen says, it's it's a political appointment. I think we'll get a real sense next week of of her stance and her approach to things. You know, we, we, at, the, at the present she's just a, an unknown quantity in that sense.
2: Will she uh, at the at the government hearing get up like Louise Mensch? And so I've just got to go and look after my children. Remember when she did that? When, when Murdoch was, uh, was, was being sort of grilled? That fantastic feminist moment. i just got to get up and go and look out pick up the children from well, school. It's funny so. you should say that because the Telegraph headline on her appointment was Mother of
3: Three
1: Takes BBC Job. A Ridiculous sexism. Mother of
3: you know. Three Succeeds Father of Three.
1: Yeah.
3: Do you think her lack of uh, broadcasting experience matters? It's hard to know until we actually get the measure of, of, her, of her feelings about it. She has shown an interest in different sorts of businesses, in as I say, a media group. I don't think that's that should that should be a prerequisite for the role. As such, I mean, Lord Patton.
1: Yeah, I mean, he didn't have a lot. but no. it's a
2: it's a very different job. It is it? It goes back to what you were
3: saying.
1: This is this, this is, is the political. as
2: a as a multi-billion global business with channels coming out your ears, with, with the online and everything, it's that's not what about you, what what goes on at seven o'clock. And that's you know, why you have Tony Hall and Danny yeah, Cohen. In I mean, this there's, this. There's, The the creative people are in the creative jobs. This is a, I don't know. You know, this is like the captain of the Titanic or whatever. I suppose that's a bad analogy, but you know what I mean. It's like this is. Let's uh, hope that's not the case. (laughs) But this is this is a huge business. This is like you know. Taking on
1: new
4: and she's got experience whatever, to run a like, huge business. Exactly, so that's all. That's that's all
2: that really. Just, matters. just
1: quickly before we move on, I mean, there was some criticism of the the recruitment process, accusations of political meddling, uh, the fact that Law Co was clearly the favourite and then pulled out. I mean, this that has to be worrying for the BBC that the uh, the politicians, not just politicians, the Prime Minister wanted to have some influence over this.
2: It's always the way. I wasn't approached for the job. I was slightly annoyed because <laughs> I was, I'd been given, you know, you, tip, you tip the wink. Um, but no, I mean, this is pure politics. This is high politics. It's, you know, it's theatre, really. It's, it means it's not TV, you know what I mean? This is this is a different world. This is yes, Prime Minister. Although it would make a good TV of. show, wouldn't it? Oh, the thick of it. Who knows why she got the job? What, whether it was a uh, a default candidate or whether she was the preferred candidate all along? Who you,
3: we don't mix in these kind of glorified circles. I well, do a version of the Apprentice instead. <laughs> what for the BBC Trust? role? Yeah. that'd be good. What about her Bake Off? You know what I mean? Danny me? Cohen's PA for a week or something. Can she
1: <laughs> do a Victoria Sponge? <laughs> just bring the two together. All right, we'll stick with the BBC just for the moment, uh, and something else that will. come across rona fairhead's desk uh, is more on the plans to commercialize bbc productions and scrap quotas it was revealed this week that the bbc will call on indies large and small to help shape the future of its programming supply model as part of a working group established by commercial director Bao samra it will meet monthly to discuss issues including establishing a level playing field and protecting smaller indies Simultaneously, BBC Studios and post-production boss Anna Mallett will draw up a business model for BBC Productions. Uh, their conclusions will then go to the BBC Trust next year. Uh, Stephen, what do you think the BBC has to do to ensure a uh, commercial BBC in-house does not receive favourable treatment be seen, uh, from commissioners? Or be main, seen to be... Be yeah, yeah. seen to
2: be doing it yeah. fairly. That's Because, re- again, we're not party to what goes on behind closed doors but the the BBC has to be seen to be playing fair now potentially it's the biggest indie in Britain it's government funded it's protected it's etc you know up against some you know auto sitting in a garret starving waiting for the next uh, commission the small indies have to feel that they're not going to get ripped off and that they are on a level, level playing field that's all that really matters so everything the bbc can do to make that seem more apparent more clear the more people it can get involved all, all to the good.
1: Yeah. So when we originally spoke about this, uh, I think it was very fresh. The news you were pretty upbeat about it. Do you, I, do you, I
2: still do you, am. I mean, yeah. to me, this is you know when you said about Edinburgh earlier. This is still the most radical thing of the summer. This is the more more defining moment for TV. The kind of when the BBC became fully uh, independent or whatever you call it, or potentially the biggest indie. That's the one that, that to me rocks the indie world. And, and gives producers hope, potentially clears out the BBC of deadwood, et etc et cetera. it's a massive sea change, and I know it 's two years before it sort of is it impl- implemented or whatever if it becomes implemented, but everything the BBC is doing at the moment is seems to be good other than the Cliff Richard news raid yes you know i mean this is the thing. Although they
1: were they were sort of you know they were given a clean bill of health by the Home affairs committee this week on yeah. that one i think think I think, so. the, I mean, I think no. the phrase was they are, are they acted perfectly properly yeah. Robin, this is a massive
3: piece of work, isn't it? It is, it is. And as, as Stephen says, it's, it's being seen to do the right thing. It's being very proactive. One of the criticisms of uh, Channel 4 at the Question Time panel, uh, which, uh, which, which Dan Brooks was there, rather than David Abraham, was, you know, you haven't got all oh, your yeah, ducks in a row at this point. You're sort of, you know, flying kites. Whereas the, the BBC has laid some cards on the table here and is now talking about a way forward I think the discussions will be very lively if you've got John McVeigh in the room given some of the comments he was making at Edinburgh he So he'll be part
1: of this working group
3: Yeah, it's interesting to see what what, come, what comes out of that uh, it'd be fascinating to see
1: how they cost up shows and things like that. I mean, they're going to talk to ITV about the way they work with ITV studios.
2: I mean, I mean that's real presumably standard. they're yeah. going to have to make some sort of profit, BBC Productions. Supposedly, if if they are a business, I mean, that's the thing. It's, are they a business or are they a kind of national institution like the NHS? I mean, the whole thing about profit and TV is, a, is an odd, odd bedfellows, you know. And that the whole point of the BBC is it should be able to have the right to fail artistically. But whether it's got the right to fail financially is a different... It's probably no, you know. isn't it? Well, it's, it's, I mean, does it have to make a profit? I'm not a businessman. You know, does it have to turn, make a return? Or, or do we allow the licence fee to pay for quality? Do you know what I mean? If you are paying for something, does HBO make a profit? We don't know. Did it make a profit straight away? These are the things I think of. You know, what does it mean to the viewer? When they turn it on and think, oh, well, Bake Off looks a little bit cheaper this week because, you know, they've got brandy goods in or something or whatever. I don't know. You know, it's that sort of dilemma the the whole point of artisticness versus, you know, value for money. So
1: lots for the BBC to consider. Uh, we'll move on to something a bit more creative. Uh, it's Talking TV's Commissioner for of the Fortnight. And over to Horse Ferry Road we go, as Channel 4 has ordered two more series of The Island with Bear grills. Uh, one will feature an island populated by men, the other by women, and the plan is that the two series will air in parallel. Uh, aside from capitalising on the show's success, Channel 4's decision may or may not be connected to accusations of sexism against Series 1. Which featured uh, just men at the time. Channel Four Chief Creative Officer Jay Hunt said women were excluded because they are already so capable. Uh, Robin, it'll be interesting to see how Jay's series tested in the new series, won't it?
3: Indeed, I thought her choice of words was interesting. That I think mean, I hope we'd all agree. There's nothing wrong with a show which is about testing notions of masculinity and manhood. There's some quite interesting things there. I don't think there's much to defend, to worry about defending there. You know, that, that's that was the purpose of that show. That said, there's going to be something interesting in. Following two islands where both sets of people know that there's the other gender is also in the show, so they' they've, that's kind of on their mind about how they survive on the, on the island. I think the the structure is interesting. I mean clearly for the producers, that's great. they've got a bigger commission, twelve parts rather than six.
1: We think that I mean they're, they're, it's clear there's still decisions going right. on about the length of the series. But we're, but, but, we're operating but, in a bit of a fat-free zone here at the moment.
3: But there are at least you know there there's, there are two separate shows. They've said that they're not going to interact. The first thing you would imagine would be what would not create some narrative interest by intercutting throughout the series. They won't have to they don't have to interact between the islands, but but as a viewer, if you're sort of seeing them up against each other, and looking at the same tasks, there's a narrative there. You
1: watched some of the first series, Stephen.
3: What yeah, no, I mean, no.
2: I I really liked it as a concept. And, you know, it's the classic sort of Lord of the Flies survival reality, blah, blah. And uh, apart from the, you know, the uh, innocent death of a crocodile that just happened to be sort of floating about, waiting to be eaten. It was, it was a really clever idea. And, and actually, I'm really excited by this new twist. I think they're willing to cut because I think if it's boys versus girls, the girls are going to be more interesting TV. Just It sounds more dramatic. It sounds more interesting. You know, this is going to work. I mean, these 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 shows, in that sort of pure form, always work. They always work because they're such clever little ideas. We all think, what would we do? Who would survive, et cetera, et cetera. So, you, you know, you they definitely work. And the new cast can just come in and do it again. Whether or not they do that thing of, you know, keep a pool of water for them and all the rest of it, it's like, those little things, I don't think it matters, you know?
1: I should say that, uh, you know, we're here in our little all-male podcast island, uh, somewhere in a parallel or somewhere in a parallel universe, there's a there's a there's a podcast being recorded with all women. Well, we'll leave that story there. Uh, thanks to Stephen and Robin. So, in a small break from tradition, we've ventured out of the studio mid-show for a trip to UK TV Live, where the broadcaster is schmoozing advertisers and press with a glitzy celebration of the content that's coming up on channels including Dave, Watch and Gold. Uh, Entertaining the audience uh, at the Phillips Gallery in Victoria are stars including Dynamo, who's in town to plug the latest series of Magician Impossible, uh, Sir David Attenborough and David Hasselhoff. Uh, We're hoping to catch up with some of them as they come off stage. Uh, Let's start with Dave Gorman, who's got two more series of Modern Life is Goodish coming up on Dave uh, soon. And with those two series comes greater confidence and pushing back against the lawyers. So I asked him about that.
0: Well, yeah, I, I meet the lawyers on the show. I make my case for things. I think there's a, there's a kind of historical understanding of what the law says that is slightly behind the curve of what technology now allows people to do. I use a lot of found content in the show. I know that a lot of other channels wouldn't allow me to show the found content that I'm showing because they have this paranoia about, but what if Hello Magazine don't want us to show their cover? And I think, well, Hello Magazine put their cover in newsagents where you can look at it for free. They put it on their website behind three mouse clicks where you can see it for free. The idea that I'm not allowed to make a joke about it and show it to you when it's freely available from then to anyone. If it was behind a paywall, I'd understand a little bit. And if I was trying to get the reaction to their cover that they're trying to get, I would understand. That would be me stealing their art. But I'm not trying to get their reaction. I'm trying to get a completely different reaction by pointing out something different in it. So, to me, there's a perfectly sound legal case. And there is, there is a thing. We did it in the first series, we, it was Hello Magazine, where they wouldn't let us show a thing. And the lawyers were paranoid, and they were saying, well, no, it's, you've got to do comment and review. If it's not comment and review, you're not allowed to show it. I okay, go, but it's a joke about it, which is inherently comment and review. The, the joke is me making a comment about it. They say, yeah, but it's not literally comment and review. And apparently, from their point of view, at that moment in time, unless I actually said, and here is my opinion of this magazine cover, which would spoil the joke, then it didn't count. So what, we ended up doing the joke and then explaining that Hello Magazine had told us we weren't allowed to use it and then explaining that the lawyers had said I have to do comment and review of it, otherwise I can't show it and then saying, and isn't it shit? That's my <laughs> comment and review, there, it's shit. And after that, the lawyers kind of relaxed a little bit and went, all right, you're, if you're going to do that every time, we're going to let you just show stuff.
1: And what can we expect from the new series? Any particular moments you enjoyed? Again, and this actually illustrates something
0: of the way the lawyers were so nice with us on this. It started because I found a camera on the beach in Brighton, and there's always stories where people find cameras and they get the photos out and they post them online and they return the camera to the owner and they're heroic and they've, as someone who, a woman from Georgia in the States who went on holiday in Hawaii and six years later her camera washed up in Taiwan and she got it back and, and the guy who found it's a hero in the, and we sort of had this moment think oh I'm going to be the hero of this story except it wasn't a digital camera, so I had to go to Snappy Snaps and get the photos developed. And let's say they were, they were a little bit obscene and uh, I had a moment in Snappy Snaps. However, that led to a thought of, I'm just going to leave some cameras around, like uh, disposable cameras, the cardboard case, sort of analog film cameras, and just see what happens. And we, we put them in a little bag with an envelope and a stamp on it and that you could just send it back to us and, and some instructions saying take some photos of this and send it back to us. And the lawyers initially said, well, you've got to put on that. It's for a TV show or something so they know what they're sending it back to. Well, that's not interesting. Finding a camera that says, hello, I'm from a TV show where you join in, that's not interesting. Finding a camera that says, hello, I'm a camera, please take a photo of this, 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 and this, and then send it back to me with no information, that's interesting. I'm not interested in someone who wants to join in with a telly show. That doesn't mean it's no... So they went, all right, then you can do it, but we're going to be very careful about what you then show if they've taken photos of things. A couple of people had taken selfies and sent them back. And... I don't think there's another channel in Britain that would have allowed us to show those selfies because they would have said, no, that person's taking that photo without knowing it was going to be on a TV show. And we were going, no. They've known that somebody, they don't know who, has left this camera with a stamp on it, with an address on it. They're posting it to someone. They know it's for something. Whether they think their is going to appear in a gallery or on a blog or on a TV, it doesn't matter what they think. They did know that they were sending that picture to a stranger. And, and the lawyers again were like, yeah, you know what? You are right. You are right. That is, that is tacit permission. And how could they possibly be upset about them joining in with a thing that turned out to be a thing they weren't expecting? I mean, that's the deal. The, the biggest surprise is, is one of the people who sent the photos, but I can't, I can't say more than that because I'll spoil it for you. But that's my favorite moment in the series. Well,
1: we look forward to it And, and the, I think the message is, push back on the lawyers where you can. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're
0: very welcome, no <laughs> worries. <laughs>
1: So Sir David Attenborough is also here, plugging his uh, watch show, Natural Curiosities. I caught up with him in a quiet corner of the gallery.
4: Well, Natural Curiosities looks at animals and makes, puts them in unlikely pairings. We look at an animal from not the standard point of view, but perhaps a sideways point of view, perhaps the place it, it takes in myth, or how it was discovered, or some misunderstandings about it, or so on, or some odd things they do. Um, for example we've got fleas how how high can a a flea jump for example Uh, well people think it's very high but how does it do it Cheetahs, uh, they are supposed to be the fastest uh, things on the planet. How fast do they run? So we investigate that and we discover that actually cheetahs can't run as fast as a lot of people think. Uh, in the sort of records book, they're recorded as filming over 70 miles an hour. And it's now known that they don't do that at all. That's, a, that's based on, a, on an inaccurate measurement about 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah.
1: What does it allow you to do that some of your larger scale projects don't?
4: Oh well it allows me to look into the history of these animals and to take a particular facet of their of their characteristics. If you did a programme on fleas I think you would want to take an all-round look on the structure of the flea and where it occurs and what different hosts are and how many kinds are and that sort of thing. But we, this particular um, approach allows us to take one particular facet, which we think is particularly interesting, and concentrate on that.
1: What do, what do you make of the health of wildlife programming on television at the moment?
4: Oh, well, there, there are a great number of them. Uh, there are many more. I, mean, I can remember, I mean, 50 years ago, one, one series a year was a sort of the level that you're at well now there are I can think of what about three or four series that are going on as we speak Uh, and very good they are too so uh, if anything the viewer is spoilt for choice
1: and I know broadcasting technology is is a fascination of yours I mean you clearly work very closely with sky and uh, you know the work they do with 3d do you think that's the future or do you think we'll start to see 4k and super high vision creeping into wildlife programming
4: Oh, Well, 3D is 4K, and and most of most of the BBC is shooting on higher and higher uh, definition, uh, 3K, 4K. Um, So, yes, but that will apply to everything, not just to natural history. I mean, the standard apparatus. I mean, after all, I started my career uh, with 405 lines, you know, uh, and that's only 60 years ago, 70 years, 60 years ago. Um, And every few years, I mean, there's another uh, upgrading. And the high-quality, high-definition, beautiful pictures, immaculate pictures that you get now with 4K and 5K... Um, are going to be standard.
1: And I'm sure you get asked this all the time, what more does the future hold for you?
4: Um, well, I don't know. I mean, here I am, I'm 88. How far ahead do I look? Um, I'm, I'm, I've got as much as I can deal with at the moment. I'm going off to film on the Barrier Reef in 3D uh, in a couple of months' time. Uh, so, yeah. Is I'm that buying, another Sky project? Uh, that's for the 3D Sky, yeah. And I tell you, the small creatures that live on the Barrier Reef, I mean, sea anemones and crabs and starfish and so and tiny coral fish, in 3D, they are simply astounding, breathtaking.
1: Well, we look forward to that and all the best for the new series. In another quiet moment backstage, we managed to grab legendary
5: filmmaker Roger Grafe, who talked about his new Monty Python film, The Meaning of Live. It's a rather unusual journey for this film, because it started with... Holly Gilliam, the producer of the live show, uh, asking one of her friends, Paul Schmazian, to film the press conference back in November. And when he was shooting, they suddenly said, well, why don't you keep shooting? And so every time they got together, rehearsals and so on, particularly Eric planning the show with uh, Arlene Phillips, he would shoot it. So then they got to the point of really seriously uh, about to do the main show. And they said, we've got nearly 100 hours of footage let's make a documentary and the Python said there's only one person we want to make the documentary and that was me uh, because they didn't really want strangers coming in after all this time uh, and people who would just make a sort of hagiography about them so um, I was rather touched that they asked and I said sure why not Um, and as it happens, it coincided with a change in my status at Film's Record, so I had the time. I'm directing with James Rogan, with whom I've made a number of films, and he did Iceland and British Airways, and a very competent young guy. And we were suddenly presented with nearly 100 hours of already shot footage, and we started filming on the dress rehearsal, and then all the way through the performances backstage and uh, afterwards. So, I mean, Alan Yentob has done a film for the BBC already. How, how will yours differ? Oh, very much so. I mean, first of all, Alan did borrow some of that rehearsal footage. Not much, but some. Um, and ours is the actual show and the kind of nervousness and the dramas and the excitement, plus quite a lot of nostalgia and memory of their f- other live shows. But, I mean, Alan, I don't want to be rude about Alan's show. I thought he did a nice job, but it was very much had you guys are wonderful show, whereas ours is, this is really what they're like. I mean, one of the stories, Jake, which is absolutely astonishing, is that they only had three days of rehearsal, right? Three days of rehearsal after 35 years. And then, with no previews in the usual way, tour of the suburb, you know, the, of the provinces, their first night is in front of 16,000 people.
6: And wrapping up proceedings, here's UKTV Director of Commissioning, Richard Watcham. I think this has been an extraordinarily successful event. I think what I've been really proud of as I've sat and listened to lots and lots of different people uh, is the lineup of talent that we've had uh, and just the quality and the ambition of the shows. And I think uh, for me, this is about making a real statement. Uh, as a broadcaster that we're here to compete and we've already said that we are we're going to commission less than factual we're going to concentrate on entertainment in that particular genre we're absolutely there to compete with other broadcasters now our budgets are the same our ambitions often are bigger uh, and I think actually seeing the people that have been here today I think that you, you can see that starting to roll out
1: so we're actually sat in a room with David Hasselhoff he's uh, he's being interviewed by someone else but I guess that's sort of testament to your ambition on Dave particularly a, a, and elsewhere.
6: Yes, I'm afraid you've got the bum steer interviewing me instead of David on the other side of the room. But, you know, what I, what I find really fascinating about that project uh, is not only obviously working with a huge uh, and extraordinarily kind of globally known talent like David, but it's the, it's the innovation around it. And I think that when you properly understand what the project is, and that it's a kind of improvised show that takes those shows that we've seen with David before, but just turns the dial on his character, the fact that he's so complicit with that, that he understands it so well, and, and frankly, actually, the the pilot that we saw is so genuinely funny, uh, is is really good for us. I think. I think it's really important as well. You know, we've worked a lot over the last few years on Dave to kind of stretch out what we've done. You know, we had panel shows and stand-up, and we decided to kind of leave those for the brilliant material that we get already from the BBC, those established brands, uh, and concentrate on other areas. And I think this is just us adding another kind of genre to the piece. You know, it is scripted but it kind of isn't you know and it's a really fascinating blend
1: so you've shifted the focus at UK TV you're showing all your original commissions on watch Gold and Dave how's that working out and how's that sort of affecting your your creative processes
6: well I think it's allowing us to focus on on an area where there is a huge opportunity at the moment in TV I think broadly it, it's accepted and certainly vocalized by a lot of the Indies that I've spoken to that there's a lack of innovation in entertainment the kind of ratings are obviously now starting to kind of come through because it takes a while obviously once you put that strategy in place for those shows then to hit air but I think when I look at uh, not only our lineup as a a whole network and what that says about us but I look at the individual lineups particularly on Dave and I think of the kind of quality and the ambition of those programs I think it was absolutely the right decision to make. Uh, and obviously, in an ideal world, we'd have limitless amounts of money, and, and, and we'd be commissioning left, right, and centre. But I think for us, at the moment, concentrate on this, grow it, and see where it goes.
1: And you talked about innovation. Uh, one of the projects you've, you've launched is this uh, this formats lab, which is really interesting. Could you just talk to us about that and how that's how that's working?
6: Well, I think that for me, uh, as I said, there was a there there is a real opportunity in entertainment, and I think similarly, there's there's a real. Uh, sense amongst the industry at the moment there's a, there's a lack of uh, innovation in formats. And this traditionally has been an area that the British have been brilliant at. Uh, so uh, some time ago, I, I blending together, probably 18 months, two years ago, sat down and thought about what we wanted to do and where our opportunities were. Uh, and the Formats Lab was born out of that, really. It's a great opportunity to try a number of different genres actually there's a game show in there there are two fact tent formats and there are two doc formats so they're they're quite different it's quite a broad range of things but it enables us to show that we are um, that we're prepared to experiment and that we're prepared to be bold and we're prepared to try to try different things and I you know I genuinely hope and having seen some of the early cuts I think this this will come true I genuinely hope that a couple of series will come off the back of that and that we'll then be able to move on and do more Year and beyond.
1: And just finally, uh, UK TV results next week. We hear they're positive and um, you know, there could be more investment in content. What's your message for producers?
6: I know, a, I know a couple of producers, and I won't mention their names, who've recently, quite big, big, well, quite big, very, very big producers, uh, who've recently said to me that we are the place that they're bringing their best and most innovative ideas to. For me, that is success. If I could get all of the indies saying that, um, obviously, I wish I'd had enough money to commission them all, but genuinely that's success for me. I would love to hear from more indies with more quirky, really off-the-wall, original ideas. Uh, you know, that, that, for us, is absolutely the way forward.
1: Brilliant. Thank you for your time, Richard. Uh, back in the studio, Stephen and Robin are still with me and it's previews time, so pull up a cushion and get comfortable. Up first, BBC2 maintains its fascination with travel by taking us on a trip up the M6. Uh, following on from the Tube and the Route Masters. the motorway will journey with drivers up and down the UK's longest and busiest stretch of road. Produced by Inside Claridge's indie, The Garden Productions, here we join a refuse collector as he walks along the verges, clearing away the litter lobbed from speeding traffic.
6: £20.
0: Got it on the dashboard, open up the window. As they pull away, it flies out. There you go, there's some more money there, look. Not a bad way to start the day, finding 25 quid. On the M5, you'll find your money. On the M50, you'll find the porn.
1: But it's not all 20 pound notes.
0: Plastic bags, coffee cups. I don't know what it is, but all the drivers appear to be on lots of caffeine. The worst part is when you find the bottles of driver tizer which is the truck drivers mainly. They piss in a bottle and chuck it over the fence for us to pick up. Either we haven't got enough services or they've just got a fetish for peeing in bottles. I don't know.
3: Robin, do you want to start us off on this one? Uh, you say the BBC Two uh, are fascinated by this. I must have been compared to some of the previous series, I left me just a little bit cold. I think there's a, some fascination with things like the Crossrail project, things like the tube. You're going to slightly more, more of a secret literally underground world so, and
1: there's an institution there isn't there yeah. involved
3: here you know we've had traffic cops motorway cops we've, we've looked at roads a lot of times it didn't quite come to life for me. There, there were some moments there was, there was a few characters where I thought they, they can do more uh, these two guys Ken and Daryl who were sort of having this sort of Pulp Fiction-esque conversation about the future of money I thought that sort of stuff is quite, was quite fun and they, they found a few characters and the guy doing the, the decibel test just sort of shouting really loudly, I thought that was all quite fun but it took a long time to get to those kind of moments, a lot of teasers at the front which had very front loaded with some of the, the best lines um, and it just didn't really sort of grab me as much as some of those other projects on the Stephen press. do you agree?
2: Well you know I got my bottle of piss and threw it straight out of the window when I was watching because <laughs> uh, it had a violent effect on me uh, but no, no, he's definitely right. It's it's it wasn't. It's not. It's the problem is it's a stretch of road with millions of cars, all of which are great narratives. But you can't necessarily pick the right cars. So from a documentary pet pe- pe- point of view, it's it's a thing as opposed to an institution. It's it, you know there was there was a mix of tones. So we had a bit of neighbors at war, and we had a bit of you know sort of featuresy type type stuff with the, the you know the, the pensioners with their, their their sewers and all the like brilliantly all. named croaks. The right? croaks, yeah, yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Croak. I mean, it, it you know and then you had this other stuff where you had to kind of nutcase drivers where you think i'm going to see somebody blown up and killed so it was a it was an uneven kind of show i mean but it held me i mean i'm a non-driver i don't i don't you know drive i don't go up and down the, the m6 but it sort of did hold me but it, it looks like next week's episode's more interesting this felt like a slightly more gentle potentially uh drama wise you know we didn't see accidents we you know we you know it was a, it was a more gentle show. And constant road, you know, shots don't make for interesting TV. But it wasn't bad. See, so yeah, motorway driving is something you
1: take for granted. So mm. I actually found it particularly towards the front of the program quite fascinating to get a bit of an insight into something that you know we do every day. Mm. I felt it sort of lagged towards the end and was running out of steam a bit. It Felt a know. bit stretched. You know, it felt yeah. like they've
2: got. You know, they've they've got these two stories. They could have done with another story. You know what I mean? It felt like there were these two things with the the neighbor's perspective was okay. The two Brummies who were complaining about the noise. I mean, that's, you know, are you obsessed? Yes. You know, I mean, that was, you could have done that in two minutes, but, um, but no, the, the, the drama was the kind of the nutcases on the road. I mean, how do you f- film that though? It's a very technically difficult thing to yeah. do. Lorry yeah. drivers with laptops. Look, you know, films. I mean, there was, you know, that's the insanity of the drivers comes across. But it was, as Robin said, it was it was patchy. It was bits of great TV and then a bit of. It wasn't really a focus, was there? Yeah. It's. what well, that's the problem. It, it, what are you actually focusing on? Are You focusing on that little one hundred meter stretch, or are you focusing on? 10,000 cars that go past every 10 seconds. It's a quite a difficult concept. How do you pull something like this together? Because, I mean, it's clear they had different points of access, didn't they? That must be very difficult to achieve. No, yeah, I mean, from a, from a production perspective, you set out crews left, right and centre and you juggle in the edit. You try and bring in as many stories as possible and hopefully they weave through. So, you know, they did construct a narrative. You did see a beginning, middle and end of stories, but... There was no, I mean, you know, the first few minutes promises big kind of crashes and things like that, but that all seems to be next week's episode. You know, it's like, I could have done with a bit of that, you know? I mean, that guy, the guy who was putting the bollards down, you know, went from being kind of quite prosaic to near death. I mean, you literally panic when you see (laughs) those trucks going past. It's shocking. And when he went, oh, here comes one. And then there's six of them all went through the last, and it was that, (gasps) that made me gasp. And there was moments of, oh my God, in it, but... There wasn't moments. loads of moments of it. I
1: I didn't like the uh, the moment where they were conveniently filming in a woman's car
2: when she blew a tire. Yeah, that seemed yeah. that seemed very, very weird to me, and I couldn't work it out. And the girl's face, the young girl's face, was like, is is she genuinely in fear of her life, or is it was it, that was it had felt odd that moment. It's really? like, how many cameras have they put in waiting for someone to blow a tire at the point where there's no hard shoulder? I don't know. Okay, The Motorway Life in the Fast Lane debuts on the 9th of September
1: at 9pm on BBC2. We'll move away from The Motorway and into the warmth of the studio for our next preview, uh, which is ITV's revival of 1970s game show Celebrity Squares. Uh, Life's Too Short star Warwick Davis steps into the shoes of Bob Monkhouse for the seven-part series, which is based on the classic game of noughts and crosses. Uh, For a taste of the banter, let's hear a clip between rounds where Davis asks celebrity Tom Rosenthal to reveal the mystery prize contestants could have won.
3: Seems to be loads of takeaway menus. We know Tom from Friday night dinner. Well, you could have had dinner sorted for Friday night or any other night of the week with free takeaways for a year, thanks to Just Eat. Just Eat. What
1: happens to the delivery thing now, Warwick?
3: Yeah, I know. I was wondering that.
1: Presumably, they're not here. We can just Hell say, way. yeah, no, someone won. Yeah. And we can all split it. And by the time they'll only find out when this airs, which gives us a good run of like six weeks.
4: But <laughs> <laughs> we order it now for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> How yeah. does it
3: I think you would give it away though, delivering to like a hundred different addresses,
1: wouldn't it? Uh, you could also hear James Corden and Sarah Pascoe there. Stephen, this is right up your street, isn't it? It is because I'm
2: old enough to remember the original. And, I mean, when <laughs> that's I saw... not what I was suggesting, by yes, the way. <laughs> of course, I, I'm brought on for only one reason: um, <laughs> your knowledge of classic 90s. <laughs> the only person who can remember where all these formats once came from. <laughs> but no, when I turned it on, it was like, oh god, and then I suddenly realised, oh, hang on, this is quite good. And it actually works. It was, it was, I thought it was a really interesting take because it feels very ITV, but it felt a bit cooler. It felt a bit younger. It felt a bit more uh, alternative comedy. I mean, the fact that they had Sarah Pascoe on there, Tom Rosenthal, I mean, as well as Mick Miller. It was a, it was a weird, funny mix, and it kind of worked. And I, and I thought it was very interesting because um, it shows that ITV are, are sort of slowly, you know, incrementally taking a few risks. You know, Warwick Davis I thought was a good host he, he wasn't was the same old you know it wasn't a philip schofield or anything like that it was like he absolutely works works brilliantly and whether or not it means that we're going to start seeing sailor the centuries and all these kind of other ones coming back because it, it, you know you start looking at these formats you think yeah they're good formats for a reason they you know they they do work the talent has the ability to, to crack jokes etc i mean we, we just heard that bit which was totally sort of off script but worked in a kind of natural sort of organic way. And James Corden in the centre square, I was a bit like, oh,
3: God. But he really earned his keep. Robin, you've got a poker face. I can't work out what you make of it. I really enjoyed it. Did I, you? I didn't. I, like, as we, yes. Stephen, as we Stephen, you know, this is not something i necessarily tune into on a Saturday night. You know, it's all like, oh, celebrity squares. That's going to be good. But I sat down and, watched, and I watched the whole thing. And I thought the guests were great. You know, very interesting that they weren't in the main ITV. You know, they had one soap star. One soap star. Mostly comedians. Hmm? If they get that mix right in in future shows, I think they've they've definitely got a hit.
2: I don't think it's Saturday night though. I looked at the previous it's Wednesday time and It's night. Wednesday night. It's now. actually going up against Bake Off, and I think it will do really well because. <laughs> do you think so? Even up against Bake Off? I, I, you know, Bake Off, Bake Off. I mean, Bake Off. How many times do we see a cake go wrong? <laughs> Eight this million people the, might disagree, though. But see, this is the problem. Bake Off is a show about baking cakes. This is a big old entertainment show. that you know, it, de- it delivers bang for your buck. You turn it on, you get good gags.
1: I mean, that, that Wednesday 8pm slot does work for ITV. I mean, they've got
2: Big, Star, big, Little big, Star, big Star's Little yeah. Star, which which plays well there. It's, it's, I mean, it works as an entertainment slot. You, by Wednesday night, you're fed up, you know, you, as a viewer. you And it's always that thing of... Oh, bake Off, Here we go. You know, if you can't be bothered with this series, you know, you know there'll be another series coming along. But you know that when you turn, oh, hang on, and then you start laughing, and suddenly an hour's gone. That's the that's the sort of ra- the raison d'être from the scheduler's perspective. That you know, Wednesday
3: night you can do with a bit of a laugh, a bit of a cheer up, without without trying too hard. I think if the previewers in the papers sort of share our enthusiasm for it, it will get people interested. You know, I hope that I, I hope they will because there's an audience who wouldn't. Because like, I didn't necessarily tune into it.
2: At the end of the show, because I thought, oh god, is James Corden going to be the centre square for the whole run? But at the end of the show, they showed a new, uh, you know, next week stars, and they've got like people like Dame Edna. And I'm like, wow, that's to me, Some that's a bookings. really mm. good booking. I mean, that mix of talent is is all, yeah. and Warwick Davis, that 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 it, the badinage, the banter, the whatever it is is really, really
3: impressive. And that's really hard to it's do. It's hard, and it's risky. You know, you're, talking, you're saying, oh, you know, Tom Rosenthal, uh, star of Friday Night Dinner, which is watched by a million non-ITV viewers. Sarah Pascoe, nobody on ITV knows who she is. No. And yet mm-hmm. she is, she is cracking gags, you know. It was a, I and, mean, they get, a, and they're getting the ITV studio pumped-up yeah. audience response as well. Not as a, as well.
2: a device for bringing new talent on, also, which is a really tough thing to do on telly. It's a really clever way. Well,
1: uh, just quickly before we wrap up, I mean, that's that's an interesting thing that ITV's doing. I mean, they've said quite publicly that they're going to try and use old formats... To introduce new talent, so Absolutely. you've got the you've got so the, you've got the warmth be. of the the, yeah. the
2: familiar, but the new face as well, and that's quite clever, isn't
3: it? It is, and
2: and played funny but straight. No, there's no. There's, you know, the fact there's that there's no Mick kind Miller of like. On there is that sort of you know the, the, it's the anchor to the seventies. I mean, yeah. But when was he last on ITV? Well, exactly. But but the, that mix being able to bring back an old star is just as sort of risky as putting on a kind of Channel 4-y type person. And
1: Joe Wilkinson turned up with his uh, with his knitting kit.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was it was a it was a clever mix because he he sort of stood out as a kind of cool comic, but managed to kind of meld in together with the kind of broad comedy. It was a it was an interesting. And he's thing. not very ITV either, is he? No, not not in. I mean, there was about four or five names on that panel that that were like brand new to ITV viewers, and yet they work brilliantly. And anyone who sees them again will go, "Oh, he's funny," or "She's funny," or whatever. And it was a, that's a really interesting thing. No you know? jeopardy, though. <laughs> Who cares? who cares? One of the things about that show is you don't really care who wins. You don't Either. care, you know, that sort of, oh, and you haven't got, got the, the holiday prize. Is that what we're watching for? <laughs> it isn't that type of show. It's It's like a sort of, it plays like a panel show. It's like an ITV version of a panel show. There you go. Okay. A
1: re-endorsement. Celebrity Squares is made by September Films and Group M Entertainment. Uh, It launches on the 10th of September at 8pm on ITV. Uh, We've reached the end of the road for this episode. Uh, My thanks to Stephen D. Wright and Robin Parker. Thanks to you lot for listening as well. Uh, We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye for now.
0: You've been listening to Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.